Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and blessings and welcome to another installment of the Gist of Freedom and Faith. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author Leslie Gist and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people past and present black and white who with faith and focus are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. To the Gist of Freedom, this is Leslie Gist, and you are listening to the Gist of Freedom. Today is Saturday. June 6th, and it is a very special day, so we have a very special guest to talk about an extremely very special person. Mr. Merrill, would you please introduce yourself and tell our audience a little bit about our guest before we start the show? Uh, Yes. First of all, I want to say thank you very much for having me on your show, Uh, and it's really because of you that uh, and your great work that I was able to identify uh, the very important gentleman who was formerly enslaved uh, on Thomas Jefferson's uh, plantation known as Monticello, and his name, Farley Fawcett, who was born 200 years ago today. Wonderful. 200. And let's tell the audience, before we delve into Peter and Mr. And Mr. Fawcett, we need to call him. Let's tell Well, Reverend, we call him Reverend. We call him Reverend Fawcett because he went on to become a very significant Reverend in the Baptist movement in Ohio. Wonderful. But you've been on the show at least once. and you, Just you one time, one time, yes. Okay, you do extraordinary work, and you're a great Facebook friend. Would you just tell the audience who you are? Because I don't want to miss anything about sure. on your bio. Sure. First of all, um, I was fortunate to receive an honorary doctorate from Eastern Theological Seminary in 2006. Uh, and before that, I received uh, an Open Society Institute fellow, from the George Soros um, organization to create a curriculum enhancement based on my company's artifacts to teach at-risk youth about their family heritage, their school history, and their community, which is historical West Baltimore. Uh, Mm -hmm. Besides that, I'm most noted for my six years with the number one show on PBS, The Antiques Roadshow, where I created the category of black memorabilia. I am now currently on a regional number one show called the Chesapeake Collectibles on PBS in the D.C., Maryland, Virginia region where I praise black Americana. So in essence, I'm an author, writer, curator, historian, and all around 365, 24-7 person that tries to uplift our legacy through material culture and telling stories. Wow. Wow. Oh, that's a show in itself. It's hard indeed, to indeed. concentrate on <laughs> the Yeah, cut it out. We talk about 64,000 things, but we're not going to in this episode. <laughs> okay, all right. I'm going to try to save those questions for the end of the show. But let's Bye. talk a little bit about Reverend Fawcett, how you and I came about having the show. Okay, well, first of all, um, I'm, a, I'm a huge fan of what you do. Uh, and I try whenever I, I'm mentally capable uh, because I'm juggling so many balls to click on like or make a comment when you put up a post because they're so uh, right on time with regard to trying to spread knowledge about the resplendent heritage of people of color, uh, both enslaved and free and, and, and so forth from a, a global perspective as well. So on Wednesday, you literally uh, made me uh, do something that I normally don't do, which is just go berserk when I saw your post on Peter Fawcett. Okay. I have and, been looking. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no, no. No, you're doing excellent. I'm going to be quiet. Keep going. When I saw your post, I said, thank you, Jesus, hallelujah, because when I, I had been looking at this man for several weeks and could not figure out who he was, 
he was speaking to me, and um, you may or may not know, but I have a Facebook page entitled Eyes Are the Window to the Soul, Collected Images of African American from my company's archive. And I like to put up unidentified folk uh, that speak to me, and hopefully someone will write in or contact me, and we will then know the uh, significance of this male or female. Well, you did it for me without even knowing. Uh, this Peter Fawcett was an unknown person to me, and uh, I was just delighted to see your image. Okay. Where did you get your image of Mr. Of Reverend Fawcett? From an online auction. Okay. And unidentified. Un, unidentified, which is the best way to get a, a image from our heritage because that way normally the price is somewhat lower than if it is a noted, identified, well-researched person. Okay. How long have you had him? How long has he been in your collection? Well, to tell you the truth, because I'm an honest person, he will be delivered next week. I've already oh. done the tracking. It was I immediately purchased him after seeing your post. Wow. I had been watching him for two weeks. And because he really wasn't important, uh, what, what I normally do is I, uh, I try to acquire content that is germane to the specific topic that I'm working on. Uh, I'm an independent scholar at Lincoln University in, in, in Pennsylvania and Oxford, the first HBCU, where we're doing quite a bit of important work. So I'm always looking for content from that region. I'm also doing work in Richmond, Virginia, the uh, Harlem of the South, so I'm looking for content there. And this, I didn't know where, who, I didn't know anything about this man. Uh, so I had to just stop for a minute, take a pause, take a breath and say, okay, you've been speaking to me. Now I finally hear you, feel you, see you, you're mine. So I claimed him and I purchased him. And uh, he will be in my hands next week. I will get down on my knees and say, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> wow. Yeah, and, and for other collectors that are listening to the show, um, if you have pictures, you now know what to do. Please scan them and send them to Mr. Merle. Dillip J. Merle, give us the name of your Facebook page. One uh, the, the, well, 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 well un unfortunately, here the, the page is Eyes Are the Window to the Soul, but at the moment, I ha and I get a lot of requests for this, it's not open for any and everyone because what I've been trying to do is to develop and it's all about brand culture and identity. I've been trying to develop this concept of eyes are the window to the soul, collected images of African Americans. So they're solely just coming from my company's archives. Okay. Now, there are other sites out there where people share images all the time, and I get private messages where people are saying, oh, I really want to share my image with you. But at the moment, I'm not willing to do that because I'm trying to turn this into a book that would then show off the, the the depth of our collection of some of the many significant images from the types, amber types, tin types, cabinet cards, carte receipts, and so forth that we are holding that normally don't come to light. Okay. All right. So let's talk about Revan Fawcett, start with his early age, his early life. This is what's really exciting to me is that most of us know something about uh, Sally Hemings thanks to uh, publications and, and reunions and, and within the last 10, 15 or more years, uh, interest in the whole coming forth of uh, what President Thomas Jefferson was doing and not doing with his enslaved folk. Well, what most of us don't know is that Peter Fawcett is right there with his father, who was a blacksmith, um, for uh, President Jefferson, along with his mom, who was a leading cook. Did you hear what I said? She was a cook who yes. was trained in France, and so she could cook French food as well as Virginian food. How exciting is that? That is incredible. And that opens up the door for all these foodies out here and the food culture and food ways. Um, there are now people that get advanced degrees just in that topic, which I think is so exciting because it sheds new light on a whole other aspect of our journey when we were enslaved. And I'm always trying to break down the stereotypes that mainstream media put forth with regard to the life and legacy and culture of, of the enslaved folk, whether they were famous, not famous, 
they still had a soul and a spirit and they have a story to tell and I like to try to help share them today. That's that's uh incredible, um, how you tied in the food and how she was trained in in, in another culture. She even went to the White House, if I could interject, because you got me all excited now, Leslie. She went to the White House with President Jefferson and cooked there. Wow. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, let it go. Let it go. So you naturally see when later on in uh, uh, Peter Farley Fawcett's journey, he becomes a elite caterer in Cincinnati, Ohio, with his brother William. Well, he comes by this naturally because what food had he been eating for years? His mother's magnificent cooking. Wow. And what year was he in Ohio as a, a caterer? Uh, he ends up going to Ohio in about 1850 when he's reunited with his parents and siblings. See, he has been trying to escape uh, uh, on two different occasions. And uh, on the last occasion, it's not funny, it's kind of unfortunate, it's all of this is, he was uh, placed in a jail in in Richmond, Virginia. And he couldn't get free until some good friends of his master helped to free him. So there's so many stories within stories within stories. It's kind of like I, I tell people, that this and other parts of our history is like an onion. You just keep peeling the layers back on an onion until you finally get to the core, or or, or, or something like um, uh, 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 an orange. You got to peel off the, the layer to get to the good stuff. Well, there's so much good stuff with regard to um, Peter Farley Fawcett's story that it, it's never ending. You, you, um, for, for instance, um, if if I could. I'm always excited about sharing the the female role with a strong man because so Mm -hmm. often the women get overlooked and he had a magnificent wife. Her name was Sarah. Her name was Sarah Mayrant Walker and they were married uh, in 1854 in Ohio. And And I'm mentioning her name because they were a dynamic couple. They were a powerful black couple that fought for the freedom of many others. They worked with Levi Coffin on the Underground Railroad, and she helped him to found the First Baptist Church in Cummingsville, Ohio. And so look how bad his wife is. Look at look at the synergy, the energy that the two of them had together and how they went out and improved the community. Isn't that a powerful narrative? It sure is. And what I looked up, I don't know if it's accurate, you can tell me, that his father was uh, purchasing... Once his father became free, he went back and raised money and earned enough money to come back and purchase most of the family members. Right. The, the father, the, the, mm-hmm. exactly. The father The father was uh, allowed to be uh, manumitted when Jefferson died mm-hmm. in, uh, in 1826. And what was interesting is that the, the, the slave owner did not allow Peter to go, which... He was supposed to. The uh, Colonel John Jones was. He and his wife were so enamored with Peter that they said they would have rather uh, let go one of their own children. Isn't that a testimony about yes, the character and the skill set that this gentleman had? And not not only that. Uh, if I could, I want to I, I want to read you something that just I can't seem to get out of my uh, out of my system. If I could quickly find it for you. Um, uh, here it is. Um, this 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 is coming from a recollection that that um, Fawcett shared uh, with the newspaper in 1898. So that's that's three years before his death. But his mind was still sharp, and and, and thank goodness because we wouldn't have some of this primary source um, data if it wasn't for him having a sharp mind. This is this this is what he says. Um, Mr. Jefferson allowed his grandson to teach any of his slaves who desired to learn, and Louis Randolph first taught me how to read. When I was sold to Colonel Jones, I took my books along with me. One day I was kneeling before the fireplace spelling the word baker. When Colonel Jones opened the door 
and I shall never forget the scene as long as I live. What have you got there, sir, were his words. I told him, if I ever catch you with a book in your hands, 30 and 9 lashes on your bare back. He took the book and threw it into the fire, then called up his sons and told them that if they ever taught me, that they would receive the same punishment. But they helped me all they could, as did his daughter. Among my things was a copybook that my father gave me. And keep in mind, uh, Fawcett's father was a blacksmith on the, on, on the plantation, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, and he says, uh, my father gave me, which I kept hid in the bottom of my trunk. I used to get permission to take a bath, and by the dying embers I learned to write. The first copy was this sentence, art improves nature. Art so first, improves nature. Okay. Art, A R T improves nature. So that's the that's what he could remember that he was able to copy from this copy book, and look at how dangerous it was for uh, the enslaved Peter to to try to be able to read and write. But he was determined, and so were some of his owners, and and that he he probably remembered that until his dying day. Which I just think is 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 just very very powerful. And we hear this narrative over and over again. I couldn't help but think of Frederick Douglass. Well, see, I would exactly because here we go again with Douglass. It's um it's it's Mrs. Ald and um some of the uh, white street urchins that are helping to teach uh, Douglass how to read and write. And and, and he also sorry. says that uh, a educated man is not fit to be enslaved. Right, and not, not only that, but one of the things that pains me today is one of the old adages that I don't like is when people used to say uh, the best way to hide something from the end person is to place it in the book. Mm-hmm. We, now, what we do you have to get back to reading. We need to – reading is fundamental. Is fundamental. People grew up reading the Bible. People put their hands on anything they could read, and today, you know, uh, it, it's, it's an issue because we're so visual. But that's right. another story it's, for another time. <laughs> but but it's, it, it needs to be said. Now, pan, a lot of Pan-African um, people are misled into believing that um, the slavers forced us to read, especially the Bible. And I always argue that the slavers mistranslated the Bible and did everything they could, but they would never let you put your hand on a Bible. Oh, and, and not... not 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 only that, but again, the church back then was so focal to our survival. I mean, it was a focus point for for a lot of reasons. And um, like we talked off air, many of these enslaved folk made it through because of the word, because of their connection to a higher power and the singing of the songs. And uh, th- this type of connection to the Bible went on well past Reconstruction and into the Depression era in the 20th century where if you talk to your grandmother or grandfather, they had a strong sense of the significance of the Bible in their life, in the black community, and in their home. Correct. And prayer was, and prayer was in school. And you improved your oratorical skills um, at your church because at Sunday school you had to stand up and recite something uh, and so forth. So all of that could carry over into any facet or aspect of your life, which is missing today. Right. Uh, well said. And the last thing you said um, that's important that we need to read. Reading is fundamental. I remember growing up on risk. Hearing, oh, yeah, hearing. exactly. See, we're showing, we're showing our ages together, right? <laughs> right. But not only is it important that we read, but as many of our formerly enslaved ancestors did, they wrote. Once they learned how to read, they continued to write. Right, right. They wrote journals. They wrote everything. They wrote everywhere. They, they, they wrote diaries, and 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 you know, I, I'm a little tired of uh, the current generation talking about certain words like recycling and sustainability. Well, guess what? Our enslaved folk recycled on paper because paper was scarce for us. So often in various books, you find other scribbling by their hand about something else because they didn't have access to a lot of paper. Right. I have countless rare books. Um, in our archive that you can tell somebody was adding some figures, somebody was writing some poetry, someone was trying to practice some of their penmanship. In our archive, we have letters from 
of uh, formerly enslaved folk from the 1870s forward where you see their penmanship. You see the struggle with some of them to put a sentence together. But then you also see educated ones that went on to uh, Berea College in Kentucky and other in Oberlin and other places where they could put sentences together and they could quote scripture and poetry and it, it, it just warms your heart. Wow, yes. And now did he write any books? Well, now, you have me so enamored with this man that uh, I can't stop my other work because that pays the pills. But um, I, I am, I am aching to dig deeper to learn more about Peter Fawcett to see if any of his sermons um, survive that are in his hand, or any letters that are in any um, special collections in an archive, or any anything that just helps to give me a, another taste of his spirit other than the uh, 1898 interview that he gave up. Okay. But, yeah, but can, can I – go, yeah. go ahead. No, no, you go. I don't want to interrupt you. Go. Okay. What, I, I just want to put this in because it's so important. His wife was born in Charleston, South Carolina, and there's not a lot of information that has been uh, uncovered at the moment with regard to her earlier life. But in 1860 – she becomes a pioneer because she is fighting the streetcar system in with regard to not moving. So in essence, she's a civil rights activist in 1860. This is, this is not Rosa Parks on the bus. This is a black woman who is doing this in 1860 because the conductor wants to mistreat her and she will not hold still for it. So in essence, she sues the company. That's, that is very important. And put everything in its proper context. Were they not at that moment trying to implement a new segregated law? Because yes, they, they 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 were, and um, the the anti separate coach issue, uh, which leads on goes on to become a, a precursor to 1896 Plessy v Ferguson. So right. you you're going to see various activities in the 1860s and 70s with regard to this anti separate uh, coach issue, so much so that uh, we're fortunate to have two receipts signed by uh, formerly enslaved folk in Kentucky that were donating a dollar to the anti-separate coach issue. How powerful is that? When you talk about black folk not being philanthropic, we then were taking care of our own because they were anting up money for this cause. And there's so many other cases that need more scholarship with regard to who was not getting off of a train or a streetcar and what happened to their uh, case. You, you know, today we just, obviously we're in love with Selma. We're in love with the, the 50th anniversary of the of the Civil Rights in 65 and the Voting Rights Act and so forth. But you've got to look almost a century before to really get the true significance and impact of what uh, we were just celebrating right now. Right. And and it's, mis- it's not taught properly because, like you said, it, it is a disservice to all the people from 100 years earlier. Right. Well, well exactly. And, and and this lady, we we don't even know very much about um, uh, his wife. And when I found that piece of research, I, I'm ready to drop everything and go to Ohio. See, because I believe uh, I believe they walked on hollow ground, and I like to uh, try to walk where they walked. Right. I, I, you know, I would like to even see the historic church in Ohio that he pastored. They call him the, the founding, uh, basically the, the father of the Ohio Negro Baptist Church Movement. He, he, he's into prison reform. Look, look, look at what this man is doing at such an right. early time. Today we need prison reform. Right. And because yeah, I mean, we don't know, because we don't know of all the work he and Many of his right, and many colleges. others. But that's why right. what you do is so important, and I and, right. and it's not a it's a mutual admiration society. Again, I state I try to click on the on your freedom site whenever I can because uh, it supports you, and then other people will see, and then we can go and learn. We we need not just take the people that mainstream society tells us are our heroes or people Correct. that uh, we need to look up to. What we really need to do is to let the, the boots hit the ground, uh, so to speak, where we go out and dig up 
people that we deem important to our community, to our family, to our church, from an entrepreneurial standpoint, and, and, and from a free black, from an enslaved, from a military. There are countless stories out here that need to be told, and it's up to us to tell them. Right. And when we talk about um, that they are fighting this new law, segregated law, it's my opinion, and I, I want to hear what you have to say about it, that the story that is untold is that they were so busy fighting the the work that blacks and whites had done and had accomplished together that they physically had to separate and cause a rift amongst the integrated, voluntarily integrated society that fought racism and slavery. And many of those societies came from a Christian or a, a background of faith. So when you hear these stories of, well, we're going to implement a new law, they did it in New Orleans. Um, right, right. Mm-hmm. Of, you know, New Orleans was a melting pot. Yeah. You couldn't distinguish any of the races. But well, they, they have that Jean du Couleur there, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So uh, many of these societies that uh, were coming about, the anti-slavery movements were integrated. They were interracial societies, and they started a campaign of segregating the streetcars for the purpose of what we're experiencing today with stop and frisk and these unarmed black men being murdered. So if you could just, you know, piggyback on what I'm trying to say, because I know you can do a much better job of saying. Okay. The, the, the crux of how I see this, um, and I think you did a fine job, by the way, uh, mm-hmm. I, I think that we forget that we didn't make it through the journey without the help of people that did not look like us. Mm-hmm. And when you look at many of these um, underground railroad activities, and of course it's very difficult to come up with new primary um, source material such as artifacts um, and uh, new stories, but there are some that are being um, put together, uh, and I'm working on some for another show. We could talk about that. Um, Mm -hmm. When you look at the 1850 Fugitive Slave Act, when you look at uh, many of the HBCUs, and this is an issue that that I'm constantly talking about, HBCUs were largely formed at the – at the hands of some white folk that wanted to help the formerly enslaved and newly freed person. So I'm trying to say that we have to understand that, yes, we are all into, uh, some of us are into black power more than others. Some of us mm-hmm. are into the recycling of the dollar and, and the, the, everything has to be pure black. But the anti-separate coach issue was, in the words of Frederick Douglass, uh, uh, a, a bit of meanness that was put upon us. And he says in his letter that I am trying to find as I talk to you right now, because in this letter that Douglas wrote that we own, he is actually discussing what the anti-separate coach issue was all about and, and how no other Christian country but America would, would, would handle any of this and how black folk need to keep their dollars uh, mm-hmm. in, in their pockets and uh, practice thrift and uh, so forth, and I, and I can't believe that. No, oh, here it is. Uh, no, that's not it, because I was actually going to read a piece of this letter. Well, we'll you, keep looking. For, you keep looking. We'll have to do it for, for another segment, but the, the, the bottom line is this. I, I think that the many of the movements people forget because a black face has been the, the put in the front of it, but it always was an interracial movement. Uh, when, when, you, when you look at it, when you look at the color conventions tied into the AME uh, church, and you, you, I went to a conference in University of Delaware uh, two months ago that was outstanding to learn a whole lot about what was going on with these um, in the 1800s at these conventions. You always had white folk there helping the cause, but sometimes all we seem to know about is uh, uh, the black struggle. And we've had the black struggle against the blacks for, mm-hmm. since the beginning of time back in Africa. And right. we got we got to get past that because we're dwindling in number. We're dwindling right. in, in number. So we are fighting each other. How can mm-hmm. we really be unified and strong and impact real change? How can we do that? 
How can how can we do that? And imagine I don't know where I don't know what it's like in New Jersey or New York or other places because I I don't get there enough to ride the public transportation. But many of the people that are on the trans, public transportation services look look like us. Right. 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 And right. if if we really put our money together and say no, we want to be treated better on these public uh, vehicles, they would be at a loss if we didn't ride it every day. Right. And so many we, times what's missed what's what's missed in the story of the being frugal and and socially conscious of how we spend our money, one thing Martin Luther King did do, he went back in history. He honored his immediate ancestors. Um, right. the boycott, the Montgomery boycott lasted over a hundred days where people got together and carpooled and walked to work. So I have okay, but, but can you see us doing that today, though? Can you see us doing, can you see us not buying some Under Armour shoes or some Nike, the latest Air Jordans that come out? I think it would be very hard to <laughs> for many people to walk anywhere once they use well, the private. <laughs> well, well, but that, that also affects our health because, see, we lived in an agrarian, an agrarian society where the folks were stronger because they did farming, they were in better shape, and we had a different lifestyle. We're sedentary now where we sit all the time, and we're spoiled. I found the Frederick Douglass letter that ties into what you're saying. It's a perfect segue. Uh, you, got your, you got your ears wide open? I'm listening. This is from the Lion of Anacostia, okay? Uh, uh, this is on his original letterhead from Cedar Hill, December 9, 1892, and is written to another formerly enslaved person. So just imagine the significance of this letter, okay? My mm-hmm. dear sir, I have duly received a copy of the Standard. and That, that was a very cutting-edge black newspaper out of Lexington, Kentucky, by the way, the Standard, and I wish well to your paper and to your purpose. The separate car system against which you are fighting is a piece of meanness, which nowhere outside of the United States could be enacted into a law. It is not only mean but absurd. In the time of slavery, it was impossible to make the white people of the South happy without the presence of the Negro uh, was in, our, in their parlors, their dining rooms, their chambers, their kitchens, carriages, and their white babes nursed at the breast of Negro mothers. Now, that the Negro is free, the effort pure and simple is made to degrade him. But I am quite sure that this arrangement will not long withstand the march of enlightenment and civilization. In combating it, I think more of appealing to public sentiments than to prosecutions in court. For until public opinion is with us, this color madness will continue in the courts as well as in the country. Go on and expose the absurdity of such an arrangement in this Christian country. Appeal to the liberal feeling of your fellow citizens, but perhaps a more powerful influence can be exerted by the practice of self-denial on our part and by doing as little traveling as possible and by keeping our money in our pockets, staying at home, and practicing industry personal neatness and the acquirement of property and education and building up of a manly character. Railroads are not so rich as not to want our money, and the public will not be so blind that it cannot see how absurd and wicked it is to proscribe such a class of people. Appeals to me for help in this fight come from many quarters, so many that I hardly have words to answer them all. I must leave it to the younger generation to bear the brunt of this battle. They have education, ambition, and mental qualities fitting them for the work, and I bid them Godspeed. Truly yours, Frederick Douglass. That sounds like a speech that should be uh, written by a leader today, doesn't it? It does, but he's saying this in 1892. What have we learned? Does history repeat itself? And and, and, and to go back to um, Peter Fawcett, this 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 man is largely underrecognized um, in history because we're so enamored with Harry Tubman, we're mm-hmm. so enamored with William Still, we're, mm-hmm. we're 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 excited about Sojourner Truth. There are certain players that constantly get all of the attention. Right, and we, why is we, it? Why uh, why would Harriet get all the attention? Think about it as far as a visual. Because she was a manly-looking, unattractive female. 
Mm-hmm. And she was leading, if you look at all the pictures, she's right. leading the black man. Of right, exactly. Truth. And even even with a gun in some cases, too, because some of them didn't want to be free. But, but here's something else that, that I battle on a daily basis with lectures and, and publications and so forth. And I mentioned it earlier. When do we stop accepting other people's heroes and, and, and sheroes? When do we decide that we want to uplift someone? Right. And when do we do it? If we can't get a book deal through a traditional commercial publishing house, self-publish it. If you can't get your own, if you can't go on some mainstream radio show, do a blog talk radio. If if you can't do something else, go to go to YouTube or create your own blog. I mean, but now there are outlets to get these stories out, and more of them need to come out. And when you talk about Harriet, and we love Harriet, let's not right, we do, we mistaken. do, we love Harriet. There's there were thousands of Harriets. And that's my point. That that, right. that that's my point. That there are so many other players that we need to dig deeper to to find them and then help them shine. Uh, okay. At a later point, I hope you will have me back on because mm-hmm. I want to I want to literally blow your mind with regard to a free black community in Pennsylvania that largely gets wiped out when Ashman Institute becomes Lincoln comes into being in Oxford, Pennsylvania. You know, that's that's a perfect segue um, because I was going to mention the Mutual Aid Society. When you said that Fawcett, they put their money together and they built these churches, these schools, and the original HBCUs were built prior to the Civil War. And well, schools, especially Lincoln, especially Lincoln being the first one in 1854 known as Ashman Institute. Yes. Mhm. So when we talk about the inter interracial anti slavery organizations, there were many all black mutual aid societies, militias. Yeah. Correct? And, so and, talk a little bit about that. Okay, well see the, the, the black militias get completely thrown under the bus or not not even they don't even surface because people don't know how to find the information on them. And my my thing is this. Think about this difficult topic. People are very uncomfortable with strong black men, especially during this antebellum era where you got uh, a lot of uh, fear. Well, let's back up for a minute. Some of the fear starts taking place in the early 1830s when Nat Turner um, has his revolt, his Mm -hmm. uprising. So that time, if you look at it from a material culture standpoint, you begin to see a plethora of other slaves trying to create uprisings and want to run away and want to fight. Mm-hmm. And if you do enough research in these different papers, uh, old, old newspapers that are sitting in special collections, you can find all kinds of information on slave uprisings where mm-hmm. where, where the black groups are plotting to do this and plotting to do that. And it's a, it's a fascinating topic that is a, never, it's a story within the story within the story. Where mm-hmm. where you where you see that they're going to take charge, they're going to have these private meetings. Sometimes at a church, sometimes at a barn, sometimes in, in some in some urban areas because the urban slaves uh, and slave folk could walk around and do more sometimes than the the ones on the plantation. It wasn't unusual um, in certain port of calls like Baltimore or or Richmond or or um, Kentucky to see free blacks walk. I mean to see enslaved folk walking around that that were running an errand or that well many of them were craftsmen so they could go and do work somewhere you know they could be hired out or they could work somewhere as a blacksmith or a silversmith or um you you, you name it because many of them were also uh, furniture makers or or potters but anyway so back back to um back to Oxford Pennsylvania with with mm-hmm. these um, mutual aid societies the, I, I equate the mutual aid societies along with the early uh, embryonic phases of the benevolent societies. These are secret groups that get together, and mm. they, they have a, they have a huge voice that the people are struggling to uncover because you were a member-based organization. Interesting. Correct. The, the, the Odd Fellows. The Odd Fellows. The 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 the, the, free, the Prince Hall Freemasons, and when you and and in some instances, uh, for instance, like at Oxford, Pennsylvania, where I've been doing all this great work on um, the legacy of Lincoln and the community, this free black community, and so forth, um, you got a lot of uh, USCT folks there, and there's a church 
that's there called Hosanna um, and blah, 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 but that's for another time. But this is the thing. When you see that some of these folks are connected to the Masonic movement, you say, okay, well, wait a minute. Any of these groups that were up and running before emancipation, what role did they play in helping other enslaved folks become free? That's a fresh approach. Is that not? It is a very fresh approach. And I dare say that the show, Amos and Andy, and I, you know, I'm not old enough to have grown up on it, but my mom, (laughs) they showed showed me some clips, and 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 I did some research on it. It was a, 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 a movement, the beginning of the movement, to minimize the the mutual aid societies and the secret societies. Because prior to that campaign, there was two campaigns that I talked about. The one campaign was after Nat Turner. Being mm-hmm, a preacher mm-hmm. who led the revolt, they started to show, like in uh, magazines, uh, the the magazines like Leslie's, Leslie's mm-hmm. Weekly and the Harpers. And Harper, sure. Right. They started depicting the the black preacher as a buffoon. Right? And then when we had the mutual aid societies, they which were powerful, did much better work with orphans orphanages and uh homes for the elderly. All of this was built on black people put pulling their money together. Exactly, so, because we we had no choice. Because if we didn't rise to the occasion, no 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 knight in white shining armor was going to. We had to. Right, and we did it. But now, when we see when we look today, we have the Red Cross, which is known. You know, no no, no one really supports these the Red Cross and United Way. Okay, but not not had, not only that. Go ahead, go ahead. But but I was, we we had our own United Ways and Red Cross. Even Marcus Garvey had the Black Cross. So which, which I love. That's a whole other topic. Wait a minute. What right. about the colored Y? What about the colored YWCA and the colored YMCA? And right. he, he, here's the other thing. Many of the black churches had their own version of their colored um, senior citizen homes. Right. Okay. Right. And, not, and not and and not not only not only that, but this is gonna really this is gonna really rock your your world. Mm-hmm. Fawcett's wife was active in developing orphanages. <laughs> for people of color in Ohio. <laughs> see, and, and it's it's a problem. See, That's who we are. Well, it 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 is, but we in in order for us to know who we are today, we have to understand where we came from, and 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 I and enough of us don't fully understand all the the ability to overcome obstacles, to deal with turmoil. Today, we got a quick finger on the trigger. We don't cope well with stress. I think. The folks that were closer to uh, the enslaved uh, generation had a greater sense of self can overcome anything. Right. And we we have to tie this. We have to tie this to today. When you talked about the colored orphanages and the schools and the mutual aid societies, we have to look at what society has put on the television in front of us. The example of the black church. And I, right, I have but, to but say and, 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 go ahead. Dollar, oh, I, don't don't get me started. Don't they don't do his, not get me his, do not get me started airplane, his airplane and his airplane has, do not get me started. Does does not reflect the history of the values of the black church. Whereas you just said Falsus Church was responsible for establishing orphan orphanages. Okay, and and, and, and guess what? He, 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 mm-hmm. There's some oral history that you can see on 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 uh, on the on the Monticello website, where some elderly lady, I think it's from that site, some elderly lady is talking about that her mother remembered uh, uh, Reverend Fawcett and how he didn't even take pay. So hear me out. You have some of these early pastors from the from the Reconstruction and into the early 1900s that worked diligently and were true civil rights activists and weren't even drawing a pay. And if they did, they didn't want to take it. Today, you got the pastor saying, huh, "Well, he need to ante up more. We need more ties because you know um, I need this kind of suit or I need this kind of watch or blah blah blah." But when you really look into um, the history of African-American churches, whether it be Presbyterian, whether it be Episcopalian, whether it be Baptist, whether it be AME Zion, 
A-U-M-P, whether it be whatever the denomination is, we were doing a whole lot more with a whole lot less. Correct. And um, before we move off the church, A-M-E, and mm-hmm. I know you know about Richard Allen. Well, yeah. Well, you, you know they're celebrating their 200th anniversary, 1816 to, 19, uh, to 2016 in 2016, right? No, I wasn't aware. Well, Go ahead. think about that. 2016 is the 200th anniversary of the founding of the AME Church. So, And a big conference is going to be in Philadelphia. Well, I'll be there. I'm going to be well, there you one know, day, maybe you know, McIntyre. You, you know, I'm already trying to work with my staff to pull content from our archives and try to figure out how to put something together because we got all these photographs and sermons and rare books and letters and so forth from these AME churches from around the country. Well, and I have stu- a perfect venue for you in Philadelphia, the Belmont Mansion, Underground Railroad, Belmont Mansion, and Fairmont Park. I have not. I have not been there. I, well, I need you're going to go that. very soon. We're going to hook up, and I'm going to take you there, and you're going to meet everybody, and it's the perfect for you to set up and have all of your your artifacts, all the ones that you want to bring. That's going to happen. But tell the audience about Richard Allen and how he was a Pan African, and he started the Mutual Aid Society. You know the name, the African Methodist. Right, church? Yes, yes, yes. So tell us um, a little bit about that and how he was sued for 20 years because he wanted to identify with Africa. Well, for, for, first of all, let, let, me, let me say this to you. Most people aren't clear on any of the different denominations. When, when, mm-hmm. when you think of a black church, unfortunately, what's going on today has clouded people's opinion, their vision, and there's a whole lot of disconnect, especially amongst black men. Mm-hmm. On on any Sunday, you will not find very many black men in certain churches, and that's part of the problem. Okay, now, th- this thing right here, um, Richard Allen, really in 1794, he, he founds this, uh, where he's a, he, it's a black, it's independent black denomination, okay? He's born in 1760, which for anybody that's into chronology, that's six, uh, 16 years before 1776, which is the founding of of what? Of, of the country. Independent. Of the country, right, mm-hmm. exactly. And he dies at, uh, at 1831 in Philadelphia, and uh, he's written numerous books. Uh, and he uh, really, in my mind, um, is probably one of the most influential uh, pastors that people don't know anything about. For, for instance, mm-hmm. he, he, he's a bishop. And today, there are, there are churches that aren't even in the AME concern and are now identifying themselves as bishop. I take umbrage to any apostle, any evangelist, anybody that is not of the AME church, that is not within the conference, that now is being called a bishop. Wow. You okay. you understand what I'm saying? So here we go. In 1816, he focuses on tr- organizing uh, this denomination where free blacks could actually worship without racial oppression and where slaves could find some some modicum of dignity. And what what this does is it, it kind of upgrades the status of the black community. Um, mm-hmm. And you, you also have to look at how his ability to help with literacy from the uh, Sabbath school uh, concept, which went on the whole Sabbath school thing went on big even up until um, really I could say into the Depression era in the late 1930s. I have proof of that. Um, and he had political strategies. See, so this man was more than just uh, he was a visionary. He, I mm-hmm. mean, he, he, he if you really think about it, as as an abolitionist, as a writer, an educator, and um, today. We know nothing about him. We we know more about hear me out. We know more about the most recent bishops, whoever's running, whoever now is in campaigning to be a bishop. But we don't know anything about the first one that, in any Sunday school, in any type of history class, or anything looking with regard to the church movement in America, we should be talking about Richard Allen, should we not? Yes. Yes, we and, 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 and I'm going to hit you with something that is going to floor you, okay? 
I go to a lot of cemeteries, and mm-hmm. I go there to find our ancestors. And I'm not going to say who, what other early bishop is, is in a deplorable condition, but there is a particular cemetery that a leading bishop, one of the early ones, well, not as early as Allen, but tied into the Civil War era, and his headstone is falling down. Mm-hmm. But, uh, and you're, and, you're and he has a direct connection. He has a direct connection to Philadelphia, to the mother, to what they call Mother Bethel, okay? Well, right? You, you do know that Mother Bethel's cemetery, the cemetery that Richard Allen's church established, is now underneath a playground. Yes, I do. Yes, I do, and I know that it's quite controversial because I've been following it very, very closely on the internet. But, but see, here we go again. If we truly valued our history, and I'm not just talking about now, but generations before, we wouldn't have allowed that to happen, right? No, right. And 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 keep this in mind. All across different urban areas, the historic black churches are struggling. Uh-huh. They're in old buildings that are large. That congregation is old. Uh, they, in some cases, have uh, questionable leadership. Right. And they're taking often, out loans. Many well, of them well, financial, financial, yeah. Right. Well, well, financial accountability or, or wise financial moves are another issue. But another topic that is really not being addressed is historically the congregation was comprised of people that lived and worked in the community. Mm-hmm. Now you have people that no longer live in the community that come to the community only for church and then leave. Mm. I never see, thought so, about that. See, so uh, there are, there's a complex issue with regard to the disconnect and the struggling of many of these uh, historic black churches, no matter the denomination, in these different urban areas. Uh, mm. I I live in... Baltimore, Maryland, uh, where we have the largest historic district in the country that very few people know, identified as Old West Baltimore. It's mm-hmm. 175 blocks of proverbial who's who in America that lived, worked, and played there. Marcus Garvey came there. He got married to his second wife, came down on the train, and walked not far from where Freddie Gray was. Is that powerful? Mm-hmm. Is that very powerful. powerful. But you guys, you guys raised up uh, Esther, a biblical Esther, in the body of Marilyn Mosby and her husband. Yeah, well, and she okay. is well, the most. She's very powerful. I hope that you know that you can agree. But go ahead. I, no, I do. As a matter of fact, um, I I bumped into her at a black-owned restaurant. Uh, jazz venue, and not very many of those have survived in Baltimore. And when mm-hmm. she was leaving, I said to her, I said, excuse me, I just want to thank you for the stellar job you're doing. May God be with you and keep up the work. And shortly right behind her came her husband, who's a city councilman, who's doing great work, and I said to him, please keep up the good work as well. We're praying for you. So That's right. Baltimore so needs true. this new this new energy, this new blood, and he comes from a very storied background. Mm-hmm. She has she has quite a, a legacy. And if if I could just add this one the one last thing, what mm-hmm. I what I need people to really understand is that I use African American history and culture heritage, um, whichever whatever anyone wants to call it. I use it as a blueprint for success today. When I am stressed, which is often, when I am depressed, when I'm at wit's end, what I do is I try to dig in the archives and pull out something that mm-hmm. is going to still my mind, going to energize my spirit, and going to give me that jolt that mm-hmm. I need to carry forth. That's, and so, that's beautiful. As I was preparing for this tonight, I pulled out a book that, uh, I think everyone should try to find online because there's a digital version, but I'm holding an original <laughs> copy. Uh, it's called Evidences of Progress Among Colored People. Let me say that title again. And it's not my book, so I get nothing out of promoting it, okay? I'm, I'm just telling you this is one of my favorite books, okay? It's called Evidences of Progress Among Colored People by G.F. Richings, R-I-C-H-I-N-G-S. Now, this is a white man in the early 1900s that traipsed all across the country to uncover quality black folk 
instead of doing uplifting work. I read some of the stories in here, and, and then I am energized to lift my head high and continue the struggle and the journey. When I see what these people came out of that are featured in this book, and some of them were formerly enslaved, and they, they just have this can-do spirit, and that's what I want other people that are listening, that, that see any of the images and content that we're constantly sharing, to know that you're not by yourself, and you too can survive through these uh, turbulent times that we live in. Wonderful. This, that's, that's a wonderful way of closing the show. Um, again, I'm going to talk to you. I almost gave this private number out over the ear. I just caught myself. But, but as soon as we hang up, I'm going to text you the phone number, uh, the private phone number to the curator at the museum, the Belmont Mansion. Wonderful. Uh, founded by um, Audrey Johnson Thornton. She's in her mid, she's over 80 years old. Oh, and, and she's on Twitter, she's on Facebook, she's doing it to keep this place alive, and it's a beautiful venue, so I hope that we could get together and meet there. And um, I, 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 would like, I would like that very much so. Um, I do get into New York uh, mm-hmm. uh, for, for business and pleasure. Uh, I don't How know. How often? Well, it just depends on um, how often I need to be there. Um, my producers live in New York for for, for some stuff that we're working on, uh, and then I got family in New York, so uh, hopping on the train or the boat bus is not a problem to go into New York for a meeting. Okay. So this has been a great show, and give us those are wonderful parting words. Do you have anything else you want to say or promote or tell people how they can contact yeah, yeah, you? Yes, yeah, yeah, sure. Um, you can uh, – Hit me up on email at philipjmerrill at gmail.com. Philip is spelled P-H-I-L-I-P-J, Merrill, M-E-R-R-I-L-L, at gmail, G-M-A-I-L.com. And what I am most proud of right now uh, is that we have a hot new documentary coming out called Tell Me More and Then Some. I'll say that again. Tell me more and then some. You go to Facebook and find the page. It is looking at unparalleled history of black music in Baltimore, where we look at the embryonic phases of jazz. We learn about people that you haven't heard of that you need to hear about. Uh, And we look at what happened to Historic Pennsylvania Avenue, which is equivalent to uh, Lenox in Harlem and uh, U Street in the District of Columbia. It's the the cultural hub of a a segregated community. We also look at what people are doing today to try to educate the youth with regard to uh, the experience of playing music and their wonderful music heritage. So tell me more and then some. Look for a hot new documentary where you will see yours truly, and uh, some other folk, uh, Cyrus Chestnut is in there, uh, Dante Winslow, and many other people of national merit are featured in this hot documentary. Wow. Are you guys going to talk about the song Baltimore? Uh, we, uh, which, are you talking about the Nina Simone one, or are you talking about the song that Hubie Blake did? <laughs> I don't know anything about Hubie, but I know about Okay, Nina. you know about Nina Simone, yeah. Um, no, we didn't because we were really focusing on jazz. Mm-hmm. We were trying to look at comparing the uh, development of jazz uh, to other places because Baltimore has largely been overlooked, but, you you know, we got a, a, a World War One military leader by the name of A. Jack Thomas, who is very similar to uh, James Reese Europe of the 369th of the Harlem Hellfighters, uh, who is Ooh. saying in 1919 that there's no place better equipped for musicians than Baltimore. This is a direct quote from the Afro-American newspaper, not anything that Philip J. Merrill was making up. Um, I'm also looking at all these people that attend Howard in the uh, early teens and how they're playing in orchestras and quartets and some of uh, the, the music culture is unbelievable and it's time for it to come out and it's time for people to learn more than Billie Holiday and Chick Webb and Cab Calloway in Baltimore. We also had his sister, Blanche Calloway. Did you hear what I said? Blanche Calloway, who fronted her, a woman fronting an all-male band back in the day. 
That's what I'm talking about. Okay. Wow. Yeah, I'm looking so, forward to seeing this uh, this uh, documentary. The name again? Tell me more and then some. I'm an associate producer. I'm the leading historian for it, and I uh, my company provided quite a bit of rare, never before seen uh, photographs. Wonderful. All right, we will uh, continue this conversation on another show uh, very soon. I want to thank you for coming on, and um, we'll talk soon. I want to thank you for all the great work you do, and God bless you, and keep up uh, keep up everything you're doing. It's so needed, and I just want to say thank you again. All righty. My pleasure. Bye-bye. Bye.